We are uh, we're together for the School of Theology, and our topics that we have been covering in the fall and in the spring have been affected by our construction schedule. Normally, you would take a Western approach and study the doctrine of God first, and then kind of as a uh, secondary to that, after you know about God's names and God's nature and um, uh, perhaps even something about his work or even propedeutic to his work, you would cover the doctrine of the Trinity. But because of the construction schedule as originally designed, we went ahead and pulled out the Trinity and did it first. It was a nice bite-sized bit that, that fit in the time that we had. So what's happened is is that we've had a reversal of that normal Western kind of approach in theology. But, but that's okay. Uh, there's nothing in the Bible that says that you have to deal with the name and nature of God before you do with the, the Trinity per se. And the Eastern Church for uh, centuries, uh, millennia, has been dealing with it in that order. And there's some, there's some good arguments that would say that was a wiser way to do it. Because when you, when you talk about the nature and even the names of God without an, any understanding of the Trinity, you keep that out of your mind, uh, then you're liable to fall either into... Um, some sort of uh, uh, unrestrained um, monotheism like you would have in classical Judaism or like you would have in, uh, in Islam. Or you're liable to fall uh, in the other direction into just kind of philosophical speculation and this God that you're talking about is an abstraction rather than being uh, the one who comes to us in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in a very personal way comes filled with the Holy Spirit, able to dispense the Holy Spirit to us, comes in the name of his Heavenly Father, able to fulfill his promises and to reveal him to us. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So a Trinitarian approach is, is, is not one that's bad uh, to the doctrine of God. We will in future semesters be covering um, the next set of loci, such as the doctrine of man and then the doctrine of Christ. But this time we're looking at the doctrine of God, God's names and God's nature, and then we've got to have a, uh, a conversation about uh, God's works in general, such as the works of the decree, the divine decree. And uh, uh, we'll have to talk about creation. And then we'll talk together about providence, uh, which is a very, um, very interesting and, and, and difficult topic, but it's where we live every day within the context of providence as, as we pick up the newspaper and God unfolds his will to us. So as we come to all of this, and we'll look at the syllabus together briefly, let's do so with prayer. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for another opportunity uh, to learn about you and to listen to your word. Uh, we pray that your word, uh, which is written and true and sure, uh, which you have inspired through the holy prophets and apostles of old, uh, might encourage and instruct us. May we know you better. And so may we be able to serve you in our Christian lives more to your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read from Psalm 75 uh, to set, uh, set our thinking about God. This is, uh, uh, this is for the choir director, a psalm of Asaph, a song. We give thanks to thee, O God, we give thanks, for thy name is near Men declare thy wondrous works. When I select an appointed time, it is I who judge with equity. The earth and all who dwell in it melt. It is I who have firmly set its pillars. I said to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high. 
did not speak with insolent pride, for not from the east nor from the west, nor from the desert comes exaltation. But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It is well mixed. He pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. But as for me, I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. And all the horns of the, of the wicked he will cut off. But the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. Here the psalmist reminds us of the close connection between who God is, his name, and his mighty works, whether it be in creation or else in the judgment of his creation. And that shows us how fundamentally important in Christian thinking and in biblical, uh, the biblical Christian faith the whole doctrine of God is. We are not here to have a uh, philosophical, uh, intellectual, speculative discussion. Uh, we are here to talk about the God, the only true and living God who has revealed himself in his word and through his Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We study the doctrine of God uh, because it is important for our Christian living, uh, how we deal with one another, uh, where we will stand on that last day in judgment, who he is and what he's like, and what he has done and still does for us is of fundamental importance. So we will look uh, at this topic together. Now, um, the course, of course, is sponsored by the church here, and the format is we're going to use the lecture styles and, uh, in, in the first uh, half of the time, then we'll take a break. And as we do, then uh, Dr. Stacy will do uh, a discussion with us, an interaction with us around the reading and around the topics that will be integrative and applicatory. And we'll look at the names of God, the nature of God, the works of God, and the decree uh, in the creation uh, and also in providence. And we're asking you to read Calvin's uh, little instruction in faith, truth for, for all time. And perhaps uh, at the break, y'all can uh, take and have a look at that, but don't steal the text or you'll cause trouble. <coughs> Uh, we begin today, and we'll go through the end of May, meeting on the second and fourth uh, Wednesdays, uh, as we normally uh, do. And then we have our wider list of textbooks. I have some up here, and you're welcome to uh, get copies of those from recommended sources. But we will have the Calvin volume for you here in the, na- in the normal sort of way. We'll have a sign out, and, and you can throw a fiver in and get, uh, get that uh, material. And there's a, there's a bibliography for further reading that's also uh, in the syllabus. We don't have an article by McLeod at the end of this one, but um, you know, Jamie, just for you, I may I may see if I don't have something I can steal uh, from somewhere and, and give it give it to you for him. That that's your uh, you're doing well to remind me of that. Did I tell y'all one time I um, I got very embarrassed with Donald. I uh, I discovered that I had written something kind of. In a rush at the last minute, um, I got pressed to do it to kind of help an organization. And uh, once it came out in print, I remember reading it. Um, you know, you, you've written something, and then they publish it, and it looks completely different than what you turned in. It actually looks very serious, you know, and scholarly. And... Um, at first, it sort of startled me. I didn't even realize it was me. And there I was, hold it. No, this is familiar with this. But it, I kept being nagged about the fact that it just sounded very familiar. 
And it wasn't the words that were familiar. It was kind of the flow of the thought. And uh, Professor McLeod, uh, it all of a sudden it dawned on me, oh, my goodness. What had happened was was that I'd been asked to write on a topic, and I reached into my file, and I pulled out a set of notes out of my file that I had worked up before. Well, it turns out I thought I had worked it up from scratch, but it was it was drawn from a number, number of sources, including his one of his writings. And uh, so kind of the, the approach to the thing had been, uh, McLeodian. So I called. Don- I thought, what do I do? I called Donald in Edinburgh, and I said, I said, Donald, I said, I have a great confession to make. He said, what? And I said, I think I stole your outline. <laughs> and he said, Oh, brother. He said, That's no problem. He said, You had no choice. <laughs> and I said, I said, What do you mean? He said, I'm in your blood, son. <laughs> okay. All right. Yes. 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 All right. So we're going to study together the doctrine of God. And we have to remember where we are in the big picture. Uh, we have studied together the doctrine of Scripture and really the knowability of God, revelation, how we know things about God that uh, either come before that logically or, or are underneath it and propedeutic to it. Uh, now we're studying the doctrine of God together, but, but it's good to remember where that topic is in the overall flow so we know our place. Um, the doctrine of man or anthropology Christology and salvation or soteriology are what will come next. And so with revelation and scripture and then the uh, Trinity and the doctrine of God, we then come to man, which is a special part of creation, and the God-man, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who comes to bring salvation uh, by his atoning work on the cross. And and all of his work is prophet, priest, and king uh, to apply that work to us. So we are are very much at the beginning of the Christian loci, but it's relevant to everything else because you, you need an understanding of God uh, as you approach Christology because he's the God-man, and you want to understand that he's the second person of the Trinity who's taken on flesh and dwelt among us. Also, we need to study the church as well as eschatology or last things. And, and the last things are to dwell forever in the presence of the Lord in, uh, uh, in glory and peace and unity with him. Uh, the church is the body of Christ, which is the bride which his father has appointed for him. So, so we're at a very good place in uh, our understanding, uh, progressive and growing understanding of Christian theology. Uh, we've talked about the existence of God. Uh, we're now going to talk about the names and nature of God. We've already done the unity and diversity of the Trinity. And then we're going to talk about the work of the triune God in decree, creation, and providence. So what is the difference between creation and providence? Anybody want to take a stab at it? What is creation versus what is providence? Creation is the act of bringing into being something out of nothing. Okay. Providence is God's superintending care over his creation. All right, and care is a good general word to use because actually there are subparts to his providence. Uh, Part of his caring is his governing. And then there are other aspects that we will talk about together. But providence works on the creation that God himself has made. And both providence and creation flow from um, the process of decision and the, the conclusion of decision back in the Godhead about the way things should be. In talking about the decree, we have to talk about that dreaded P word in the Reformed faith. What, what is that dreaded P word? Predestination. 
Yes, predestination. So we'll talk about the decree and, and, and providence that flows from it as well as creation together. Now, how do we know of God? Uh, again, it's good for us to take a running start. We know of him through general and special revelation. Uh, the scripture is normative, and that means the Old Testament and the New Testament are both relevant. When we come to know about God, we are not just looking at the New Testament. And it would be a mistake to think, oh, God, that's the Old Testament thing, right? No. God encompasses both of the Testaments, and so we have to look at uh, both of them. And then down through the years, in the early church, medieval, reformation, and modern church, um, we are not the only ones to ever think about the doctrine of God. We're not the first ones to, to kind of confront this topic. You know, um, I have a friend uh, uh, at some distance who I, I correspond with uh, on the Internet at times, and, and he tells me about um, uh, theological truths that he learns uh, about basic Christian doctrine. And, and, of course, these ideas about the Trinity or about the deity of Christ, these haven't come from uh, Paul uh, or from uh, Athanasius or Augustine or uh, Calvin or, or any other great theologians. They've come from uh, somebody who's in his, uh, uh, in his city that is a great thinker. And uh, uh, there's a contemporary, it would be kind of like in Houston if you said Joel Osteen, you know, well, you know, you know, the guy who really has done and told us really about the Trinity and discovered that is Joel Osteen. If that kind of a claim were being made here in Houston. Um, we do well to recognize that we, we shouldn't have blinders on. We should recognize the whole sweep of history, Old and New Testament, but also each major phase of church history. Uh, we're not the first people to think about this. The Lord has been working through the community of the saints long before we get there. And that's not bad for us. That's good for us. We want to stand on the shoulders of others. You know, when I was, uh, when I was a high school senior, I was in a world history class, and there was a poster sitting on the wall. I wish I, wish I could find a copy of that poster and, and frame it and, and hang it up in my, uh, in my home somewhere. And it was a picture of a chair, a simple wooden chair, sitting on a giant stone chair out in the middle of nowhere. And the caption read, those who are ignorant of history are condemned to repeat it. The idea was is that the modern thought he had invented a chair and he didn't realize that uh, the ancients had, uh, had uh, been making those for quite a long time before he ever dreamt of how to do one. Uh, the point here is, is that we need some sort of fellowship of the saints, community of the saints going on uh, as we uh, think about the doctrine of God. Uh, I can remember one time I was um, lecturing uh, with a group in uh, Cajamarca, Peru. And uh, we had gone up, uh, taken a group out of First Pres Jackson, Mississippi. We were doing vacation Bible school. We were doing door-to-door evangelism. And we were doing um, uh, theological instruction for the preachers who lived up in the mountains in the various lay churches or churches with lay preachers up in the mountains uh, around the northern capital of Peru, old northern capital of Cajamarca. And, and these lay preachers all came down. They were lucky to have a Bible. And they were, they were very well educated for their time and place that they knew how to read that Bible. Uh, and I don't mean in Greek and Hebrew. And uh, as we taught on the, on the uh, person and work of Christ, as we taught on the Trinity, they asked every major question from early church heresies. 
Uh, well, now hold on. What if these two natures are fused together? Well, now hold on. What if he's God, but yet when he's man, he's not God? So we got Eutychianism, we got Nestorianism. What if he's missing some part of humanity? We we got Apollinarianism. We got every major early church heresy asked in the form of Q and A at the end of lectures. And it's not because the teaching was uh, heretical. It's because these are guys who, who actually have been meditating and thinking about these things. They needed to be encouraged to know that they were not the first folks to ever face that. And that uh, the Bible gave real answers. And it, it could be an encouragement to them in their Christian walk in ministry. So the, the scripture is normative. Uh, every word of the Old Testament is relevant to us. Uh, and... Uh, uh, the uh, whole issue of whether God should be depicted, we'll talk about at the end of the time together today. Uh, the New Testament reality is also important uh, in the form of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God has revealed himself, and uh, we need to recognize, as the early church did, uh, that he is three in one, but yet we don't have to uh, depict in vision or be twisted in our thinking uh, by this kind of depiction. And we uh, don't need to have our worship practice corrupted uh, by these by misunderstandings or um, uh, uh, unbalanced approaches that aren't uh, developed in light of scripture. Uh, scriptural control has happened in the medieval church. Uh, the Reformational church is more help to us with its, with its emphasis upon uh, the deity of Christ, the work of Christ. And in the modern period, we have uh, good, bad, and other that we have to sift through. There are some who have been teaching in the modern era uh, denials of the personal nature of God or denials of his triune nature, uh, denials uh, of some of his attributes or asserting that he's finite rather than infinite. And in so doing, they have abandoned the Christian faith that has been once delivered to the saints. And so uh, we do well to look at the modern era, but to do it with great care. So we are going to look at the names of God, the nature of God, the works of God in decree, creation, and providence. Let me begin uh, by looking at the Semitic name for God with you. Uh, that Semitic name is El. Uh, it just simply means power. Uh, let me give a couple of verses if I can get help from you in looking these up. Um, Psalm 19.1. Psalm 19.1 and Nehemiah 9.32. Nehemiah 9.32. If I can have help with those two. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. All right. In, in, in Psalm 19.1, uh, the Semitic uh, designation for God, this term El, which fundamentally means power, uh, is what is used. The same is true in Nehemiah 9.32. Somebody looked at that for us. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that is going upon us, about our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people, since the time of the king of Assyria until this day. Here, the the, con the wider content of the verse also emphasizes what the name which is used where God teaches, that God is powerful. 
And this name, this Semitic designation, is used as a component of personal and place names in order to emphasize the fact that God is the one who was or who is powerful in certain locations and in relationship to certain people. In other words, um, uh, what is being emphasized here by this use of language and a name for God that means power is that God is not deistic. He's not tucked off in some far corner of the universe and uninvolved. He is involved. He uh, inserts himself. He, he is thoroughly engaged or wholly engaged in what is happening uh, in the world. Uh, Donald McLeod puts it this way. Biblical history is not evolutionistic, but cataclysmic. Uh, it moves forward in mighty uh, intrusions and interruptions of God uh, onto the field of history. And, and for example, there's no greater um, uh, example in all the scriptures than the flood of Noah where God intrudes by a mighty act and he wipes out all but one family in the earth uh, because of the sin of men. Uh, there's a second uh, aspect of this Semitic name, that it's a, uh, a component of the names of the patriarchs, like El Abraham, the God of Abraham. And we see this echoed in the New Testament when the Apostle Paul puts a strong and repeated emphasis upon the personal testimony upon his personal conversion, and he uses terms repeatedly like my God uh, and my Lord. God's covenantal commitment to his people is emphasized. And so the term power used as a Semitic designation of his name is combined with, with the personal names of patriarchs in, in order to show that he is the powerful one in relationship to Abraham in relationship to Isaac, in relationship to Jacob, in relationship to you and me. And what is the nature of his relationship with us is that he's bound himself in covenant. Now, the word covenant doesn't have the word power in it. But the word covenant, because of God, how God uses his, the Semitic designation for himself, his Semitic name, uh, that implies that he is an active, strong um, person uh, in favor of his people in covenant relationship with them. Um, when you are in trouble, uh, when you are uh, fighting an enemy and the enemy is beginning to defeat you, or when you are sitting on the rooftop and the waters are coming up, you need not uh, some wet spaghetti noodle to come along and uh, just sympathize with how you're feeling at the moment. You need a strong arm to reach out and grab you and rescue you uh, and protect you and aid you. And that's what God is telling us about himself, even by the very name that he chooses to use in its Semitic designation uh, for himself as he reveals himself to us. Uh, his name also is most often in the plural, 2,550 times in the Old Testament. He uses this Semitic designation, not in the singular, but in the plural. And he begins that even in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God. And the term there is not El in the singular. It's Elohim, which is uh, uh, the plural uh, for this Semitic term, power. And by using that plural, uh, it's not a plural of majesty, but a plural of intensity. And I told you before, I... I one of, the, one of the things on British television I will never forget is the night that uh, Maggie Thatcher, 
I saw it on the TV flickering. Maggie Thatcher came out of number 10 Downing Street. You know, they have a microphone right there in the, uh, on the sidewalk. And, and she came out and, and she uh, just beaming, just beaming. She had her first grandchild. And she said, we are a grandmother. And the British press was furious because she had used the royal we. Only the monarch can use the royal we. Only Elizabeth could say that rightly. Who dare that woman be that tried to usurp the place of the throne? She thinks she's not just the prime minister. She thinks she's the queen. And, uh, oh, it went on for a week. I thought it was hilarious. Explain the plural again. Uh, The idea of plurality of majesty, that God is one who is not just power, but he's power upon power upon power. That he's not just God, he's all godness. Not just uh, one little thing you might imagine is God being. He is everything in a blossoming, overflowing, infinite fullness. And so the plural of number is used rather than the singular. But that obviously then doesn't refer to the Trinity. Well, I think the proper way to put it is is it doesn't explicitly teach the Trinity, but it does help prepare the ground for our understanding of it. It emphasizes the idea of plurality in relationship to the Godhead. Now, does that teach three persons in one nature named Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with, with certain communicable and incommunicable attributes? No. But but it prepares the ground, and, and frankly, from a, a retrospective Christian standpoint, it's not surprising at all. If, if you think about it, it's kind of what you would expect. He's planting seeds. He's preparing ground. Not because he needs to for himself. He knows who he is. It's because we're finite, and we're weak, and we're bumbling. I remember the day as a kid, you know, my... My father, uh, when I was growing up, was in a wheelchair. Uh, before that, he had used a walker. Before that, he had used a cane. He had, had, was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis when I was growing up. And uh, for most of the time that I can remember, uh, as a child in the home, he was, he was flat on his back. And uh, I remember the day that uh, that, that uh, great uh, TV sitcom Ironside came on, and the guy had a motorized wheelchair and a van. Dad said, that's what I want. <laughs> we didn't get the van. We got the wheelchair. There you go. Uh, the idea here is that, that Elohim is consistent with the Trinity, but it's not conclusive revelation of the Trinity, I think is a good way to put it. And there's a contrast here with the surrounding pagan nations because uh, the heathen gods are limited. Uh, they are limited in place. Uh, They're even limited in the degrees and aspects of their power. Uh, They have control over water or over air or over trees or over a certain kind of vegetation or field. But God is the one who is the summation of all godness and all deity. And the Semitic designation for God is one which is of enormous kindness to the surrounding pagan nations. Because it gave, on the level of linguistics, a first handle to them. Uh, You can think of it as a hand reaching out, that they might come to understand something about how very inadequate their understanding of of God and the way the world is really was. It 
It's not that they're a thousand and one different little gods, and every time you change to a new county, you've got to figure out what the new one wants. It's that there's one god overall uh, who is uh, even more powerful than anything you can ever uh, in our finite minds imagine. The, um, uh, there's also a Jewish name for God, translated uh, uh, Yahweh or Jehovah. Uh, the term literally means I am. It's a term referring to the being one. And the first time it's used is in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4. If somebody will look at that for us, please. Genesis 2 and verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, this language, this Jewish language for God uh, with the Tetragrammaton, uh, teaches us that our God simply exists, that he actually is, that he's the being one. Uh, and that is... Uh, uh, that reminds us that it's an enormously traumatic thing when someone is, attempts to be an atheist, when they attempt to deny the existence of the one who is really there and whose reality is testified to them through the created order and even through the creation of themselves in their eyes as they stare back at themselves in the mirror every morning or look in the water and see their reflection. God really is there. Uh, there's no doubt about his existence. He is the living God. And he's not a projection of the human mind or imagination. He indeed is true. But also by that name, it's not just that he is there. He's also the being one. He's not the becoming one. He simply is. Um, and in other words, he's not the God of Alfred North Whitehead's process theology of the book Process and Reality in 1925. Uh, in the beginning, God already was. Uh, God communicates to us about himself, even just by his name. And he's also inexhaustible. Um, the burning bush is the symbol of God, and he burns and burns and burns, and he is not consumed. There's no diminution of resources. There's no depletion of who he is. He has fullness of being. And uh, what he is... Uh, uh, and what he has shown himself to be is related to, or he is currently what he has shown himself already to be to us. He's a covenant God. He keeps his promises. Uh, he's defined covenantally, not in absolutist kinds of terms. And this is frankly the reason why I am very skeptical about abstract philosophical approaches to deity. I'm left fairly cold there. I, I do think it's kind of like ethics the philosophical study of ethics, you, you can come to some basic understandings, but because of the, the darkness of sin, the, the twist of our own mind, the blindness that we have by nature, we are not going to be able to go too far out uh, in our line of reasoning before we'll go astray. And so we do well uh, to recognize uh, that his commitment to us by binding himself to be himself towards us uh, is uh, ground on which to stand. When you say an abstract philosophical approach to understanding music, what does that, that mean? Well, you have, you have a lot of modern theologians who don't spend their time studying the scriptures, who don't even spend their time studying the works of God. What they spend their time doing is studying their own imaginations about what God might be like if he exists. And they think of certain strains or strands or aspects of that. Um, 
Some, for example, uh, have a God which is inferior to Santa Claus. Because at, at least with Santa Claus, he sees you when you're sleeping and he knows when you're awake. He's personal. With a, with a lot of modern theologians who are a gaga in mainline universities and seminaries, the God they're talking about is not personal. He is an idea. He is not a person. And that is just, frankly, a completely different religious philosophy than anyone who is a follower of Abraham who gets called by God. Uh, they are paid well, my friends. <laughs> they are paid well. Yeah, they have the uh, religious industrial complex publishing um, uh, uh, industry behind. Uh, they do very well. All right, we're going to take a break at this point, and then we'll come back. What were you going to show us at the break? All right, folks, let's, uh, let's get ready for round two, shall we? As, um, as Dr. Rankin said, we're, our, our textbook, if you will, is this uh, little volume by John Calvin. It does have different names, but it is the same book, just so you understand that, right? Instruction in Faith, or I like the name Truth for All Time. That just sounds so permanent. <laughs> exactly, it's everywhere. <clears throat> the, it's, it's organized into a series of relatively short chapters. And, um, and we're just going to follow those in order. <clears throat> or actually, my plan tonight is to actually work through the first two chapters. The first two chapters are tiny. I mean, literally, if I were to hand them to you right now, you could read them in the next you know, five minutes. They are very short. Uh, but they are packed within an incredible amount of uh, really provocative uh, thinking. That's, I don't know if you've, I sh- I'm sure some of you have read Calvin before, but maybe some of you have not. Uh, he's just like that. I mean, he, he, a single sentence can occupy you for quite some time. Uh, he's just that kind of thinker and writer. But the, the title, again, I'm, I'm working from uh, the Furman translation. We'll use the other one later when they all come in, but in the meantime. <clears throat> the title of the first chapter, All Men Are Born in Order to Know God. Just think about that with me for a second. All men are born in order to know God. If they don't exist, they can't know God. Well, that's... Yeah, I guess people who don't exist are off the hook, right? Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> I once had a, a student. I was teaching... Um, we were looking at, uh, at Romans 13, which has that very powerful language about obeying the civil authorities. And, it, and, and Paul even goes on, you know, all civil authorities are instituted by God, right? So it's very, I mean, he's very strong language. And some, some people don't like the idea that we're to submit, right? People are, it's, it's our nature, right? We're rebellious. The idea of submission rankles us sometimes. And this one student in particular just did not want to submit. Like this, surely there must be a loophole, like, you know, something that's going to get me out of this obligation to submit. And finally you saw the light go on. He, ah, what about the civil authorities that don't exist? <laughs> All right, then you are off the hook. You do not have to pay those. <laughs> so you found your loophole. 
But Calvin is making, a, again, a Pauline statement, if you will. It's, it's pretty broad, and it's pretty, all men are born in order to know God. Let me just ask you to think about this for a second. What, what evidence could we present to suggest that that is, in fact, true? I, just in your own experience, are people, in a sense, made, born for the purpose of knowing God? How would you explain to Sarah, who just walked in? Yeah, I'm dead. <coughs> Don't you want to know how you got here? Actually, origin's a big one, right? That, that thought, where did we come from? That occupies us a lot, doesn't it? I have... I've met lots of different kinds of people, people who are by no means Christian, who, who embrace other faiths, who believe all sorts of crazy things. Many of them are occupied by this very question. The idea of an origin, where we came from, is very important to many people. Almost everybody, it would seem. Again, I'm thinking of how would we know that, that Calvin's basic assertion here is right, if it's in, indeed right. What else in your experience would tell you, yeah, maybe people really do have this purpose in part to know God? Yeah. Well, we can see from the testimony of those who are considered to know God very well for a simple human being that they find it preeminently satisfactory often when there doesn't really seem to be anything that you would think could be satisfactory in their lives. Such as, like, what would be the problem? Any problem, from persecution to all their family members dying in a free car accident kind of thing. Yeah, Job, right? I mean, I hate when the building collapses on my family. This is actually, that's the direction Calvin, you didn't have the, the book in front of you, I realize, this this chapter consists of a paragraph. It's Like I said, it's short. But that's the direction that he takes it. Just think about this. Every culture believes something, right? There's no such thing as a whole culture of atheists. There's no such thing as a, a body of people as a whole that just rejects the notion of God. Now, they might have some pretty warped notions of God. I don't know what the French believe, but even, even the French sometimes have a... It, it, just, it is almost the rarest thing to find people who just utterly reject God entirely. I was, depending on who you ask, and there are different ways that people try to measure this, I just, the thought occurred to me this afternoon as, as I was thinking about our time together this evening. How many Americans are actually atheists? Like, I'm not saying sort of agnostic, not sure what they believe, because that kind of that proves Calvin's point, right? They're curious. They, they don't know. They're thinking about it. Those who say, no, I consider it at all. There's no such thing as God. That comes out to be like, depending on the, which polling firm you ask, 1% or maybe not quite so much of Americans actually reject God. And I, I don't know if you've ever spoken to real atheists. I, I have on, on the numerous occasions... Boy, it sure feels like they're working awfully hard to reject the notion of God. Like, they really have to put some effort into it. So even some of them, you see, I'm saying, I'm doubtful about those. Even they seem to prove Calvin's point. Even, you can often read that a lot of people who even claim to reject God end up having the 
the emotions of worship, even if they were to say it's worship, it's yes. something else. That's a great point. Even, right, so they... C.S. Lewis wrote yeah. a lot about people who ended up worshiping, like, the life force without them being able to say what it was. Yeah, they... they that, that need is so great that even if they reject God, they must put something in that spot. I saw, I saw some sort of news story this week about, you know, they have atheist churches. There's even schisms I was just... in the atheist church. Like, what's that all about? <laughs> 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 well, Schism part, or well, just in general, it's not so different from us, you know. Like, how often do we really allow God to occupy His throne? You know, uh, that's a great point. Actually, you know, yeah, we, that we do it pretty well ourselves too. I'm not saying like, oh, you know, whatever, but yeah. You've largely anticipated chapter two, because Calvin is exactly yeah. That's that is the direction he's going. So. <laughs> Atheists almost, I, I want to be careful how I say this, this will, be, this will be offensive to some people, atheists almost don't even matter. Uh, that sounds harsh, I realize, but, but they are such a, they are so few, they are so marginal, they are so, in many ways, irrelevant. Now, that's, I'm saying genuine atheists. Now, there are lots of people who lead inconsistent lives and maybe espouse views that have sort of atheistic tendencies. People are conflicted all the time. That's, but I'm saying those who have just written off any possibility of God, most people don't live that way. Yeah, yeah we, we want a God, but we don't want him to be inconvenient. Exactly. I want a certain kind of God, right? Exactly. That, that phrase has become so common in our culture. Well, my God. All right, you pagan, whatever. My God wouldn't send anybody to hell. It wasn't that nice for you, but what about the rest of I'm going to do something terrible here. I want to write three words on the board. And I know that half of you can't see it, but I'm going to do it anyway. And you can ask the other half what, it was, what I said. <laughs> Some of you have heard me talk about this before. I'm just going to keep this brief. It was Francis Schaeffer who originally, I think, sort of put these words together. But, um, yeah. Um, I, I read this in, in Nancy Piercy's work called Total Truth a, a while ago, too, and and she extrapolates a little bit here, but, but Schaefer and Piercy kind of make this argument that the, the basic arc of Scripture is telling that story. God made the world. It falls into sin and disorder. God creates a plan and, a, and executes a plan to redeem. And that's, that's sort of, there's a basic progression there. Now, that's obviously grossly simplified, right? But that's the point. That's the reason she draws it out that way is because, yes, it's simplified, but her point is that every other religious system, every other subsequent philosophical system that's come along since then basically models that cycle. Now, they have a different account of creation, a different kind of fall, and the prescription for redemption is radically different, 
But the pattern remains the same. It's as though those basic categories are real and must be addressed. So think about it like this. Every religious system has some account of creation. They have to explain how we got here. Or they're not relevant. Nobody, they will, nobody will pay attention. It's like we said. It's, that, it's one of those burning questions. It's kind of what Calvin's getting at. That we all share. We, we want to know where we came from. We are not satisfied with just sort of, yeah, you appeared. Yeah, but what was there before? And how did that work? And how did that get to be that way? And so some account of creation is necessary. Now, even if then, you understand where this is headed, even if you put something else besides God in that hole, they all have to have some account of origins, some account of where we came from. Or, or again, people just won't pay attention. It will not satisfy the need. Now, they might satisfy it in a bad way. You understand what I'm saying? They, they might get the answer wrong, but they have to provide that answer. But here's what, <clears throat> this is what, what, what I think Schaefer, the important truth that he hit upon, every world system, whether it's religious, philosophical, whatever, all of them have some kind of problem, a fall, a, a, a debilitated state that must be overcome. The most secular of these philosophers still do it. I have, I've been reading all my life, at least most of my adult life, <laughs> trying to find among the philosophers and theologians of the world anybody who makes the case that the world is just fine. No problems, nothing needs to be addressed, everything is hunky-dory, there is no fall, thus no need of redemption, nobody makes. Karl Marx doesn't make, he's as, as the as polar opposite of Christianity, he thinks that there's something wrong with the way things are, and a redemption of a sort, a plan called communism, must be instituted to fix the broken world. Everybody thinks it's broken. So all this is simply saying, this, when Calvin makes this observation, that we are, in a sense, made to know God. We are born for that purpose. Even if we avoid that purpose, the avoidance sort of is the proof that we still are made for that purpose. He says that in a paragraph. It just took me about 15 minutes. I guess he's more succinct than I am. But you get the point. It's, kind of, it's a universal experience. For even for those who adopt a different God, who reject God, who put something else in its place, it's a universal experience. So let me um, I want to point out something here. Let's see what Calvin says. It's different than Simon says. Reformation day game. Right <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Calvin, Calvin says, says stand on one foot. <laughs> uh, this could work, actually. What did Calvin say? Anyway, I could go on all day. Um, he says the following, uh, leaving aside unbelievers who seek nothing but to efface from their memory the idea of God, which is planted in their hearts. This is the important part here. I want you to hear this. We who make profession of personal religion must reflect that this decrepit life of ours, which will soon end, must be nothing else but a meditation of immortality. I want to ask you about this. We, that's, he's talking about Christians now, right? So forget, forget the others for a moment. Let's say we're all on the same page about that, yes, we're born for, in order to know God. But he says that we, believers, must reflect that this decrepit life of ours, 
must be nothing else but a meditation of immortality. I'm asking you, what do you think he means by that? Our life, decrepit life, is a meditation of immortality. I didn't say this would be easy, did I? I didn't imply that. It sounds passive. You're saying Christians, the Christian life is a meditation of immortality, and that's it? No, that's not that's not all he's he's saying. I mean, yeah, gotta read his writings, but I mean I think he, he it means that we need to realize what our fallen condition truly is and what you know, the curse of sin is and and, and you know the ultimate um, penalty of that curse and all of the implications you know of of the of the fall that impact our life. And, and when you do that, you come to the conclusion that this life is, you know, I'll put my Eeyore cap on. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I mean, but in the midst of that, we know that this is not the end. Yeah, that's... It's, we have... We have that's right. Life. We have yeah. mortality. There is something beyond this world, something beyond the veil that we participate in. Even now. Yeah, this maybe it sounds better in French. I don't know, but <laughs> it, it, it seems to me that, that that God put Adam in the garden not just to meditate but to work. Yeah, that's. I think, I think that's, that's the. the at all. Yeah, it's. I think it's. I think it's the word. Yeah. In the end, uh, it, it just talk when we have eternal life through Christ. Yeah, don't don't I mean, cling on to this life. Right. Means, this life should teach you. You have an an eternal life to be thinking about. <clears throat> I meditate in this passage, Calvin, probably means something like being centered around yeah. that consciousness. Be reflected on, right, Whether exactly, yeah. Meditating as in thinking and reading and writing, or meditating as in acting on that, with that being your thought and your, your yeah. present active consciousness. Yeah. He what doesn't... I was thinking is that our purpose now as Christians is to spread the gospel. Which is one of the things that awareness of... Yeah. Right, uh, right. Heaven and penalties of hell right. impels us to do. It's, it's, it's God's gift of immortality and eternal life to us is the center of our consciousness. That will indeed impel us to spread the gospel. Yeah, and other things too, right? I mean, it's not simply spreading the gospel. It is other things as well. <clears throat> All of that, though, this life, in a sense, should teach us we have an eternal life to be thinking about, concerned about, to be oriented towards. So, at the end of the day, it's not just, as the, so the, again, what's the, the chapter title? Very simply, all men are born in order to know God. Knowing God is like, it's not the end, it's the beginning, right? It's like it opens up an entire vista. It's not sort of a conclusion. It's, it's the beginning of a whole new life. It's immortal, immortal and eternal. Well, exactly, I, yeah, I, I'm not sure, yeah. I, I, this is, um... Calvin's not doing anything particularly original when he says that. It's a good thing. I, I guess it's sort of, I'm a little puzzled by that statement, though, knowing you know, Calvin's uh, you know, firm conviction about you know, God's predestination mm-hmm. of both you know, the, the elect and those who are not. Are, you know, how does that apply to those who are not you know, part of you know, the elect? 
it means, yeah, it means they're choosing badly, right? I mean, in a sense, they're not choosing at all, but they, right, they can't, they're not going to know God, right? They're still made for that purpose, but they're going to fail to achieve it. Which is a tragic thing, but it's, that's why every system we can look at still fits the model, but they're wrong. It's, it's not a happy thing. It's a sad thing, but it's, it's true. So elect means nothing to them. Elect only... Right, right. I was a non-Christian. nothing to me. Sure, yeah. What do you care at that point, right? You only, you only understand it by looking back. That's really true, yeah. Yeah, at the, at the time, you're right, it's meaningless. Yeah. yeah, now these are categories that I understand, but at the time, yeah, that didn't mean a thing to me. And so, that doesn't mean that I was not made to know God, it just means that I didn't know. Yeah, exactly, right. So here's how, here's how he ends chapter 1. This is the final sentence. It is necessary, therefore that the principal care and solicitude of our life be to seek God, to aspire with him all the affection of our heart, and to repose nowhere else but in him alone. So I don't know if you caught that. There are sort of, there are sort of three things he points to there. Let's, let me just number them for you. He says, uh, it's necessary, therefore, principal care and solicitude of our life be to seek God, to aspire to him with all of affection of our heart, and to repose nowhere else but in him alone. Seek him, aspire to, aspire to him, and repose in him. How, how does one do that? Actually, I think you're right. I mean, that's the story of my life is how I fall short of each of those three things, I think, for the most part. <clears throat> I'll take any of them, the obscure ones even, if you got it. Well, I mean, the obvious answer right, is that we do that by being drawn closer. We don't. Yeah, I, that's true. I, I can struggle away all I want. That's not really, that's not the solution, ultimately. Did anybody write a commentary on that? Exactly. <laughs> 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 Two books now. <laughs> That's right. It's it's grown since he started, right? Yeah. And we're going to get uh, we're going to get Steve a copy of the first. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let me draw your attention then to the first sentence of the next chapter. It's amazing how Calvin does this. It's as though chapter two follows right on chapter one. So he says, since it is commonly agreed that if our life is without religion, we are most miserable and in no way better than brute animals, no one wishes to be considered as completely alienated from piety and acknowledgement of God. There's a, there's a reading of that sentence that makes me wonder one possible reading of that sentence that makes me wonder, is that still true, or is that maybe, is that Calvin reflecting his own time and age? There is a cultural bias there. Yeah, that's Geneva right there. Say that again? I said that's Geneva right there. It is Geneva-like, at least, yeah. Let me read one more time, all right? Since it is commonly agreed 
that if our life is without religion, if our life is without religion, we are most miserable and in no way better than brute animals. No one wishes to be considered as completely alienated from piety and acknowledgement of God. Although a lot of people are content to be actually alienated from piety, but don't want to seem that way. You know, this is this is it, I think. Yeah. You know, Joe on the street, are you alienated from piety after you figured out what you meant? You have to write. Well, that's exactly. I'm a good person. I do what's right. No, yeah, I'm not. I'm I'm a decent person, right? I, actually, I think that is quite common even today. And the number of people in America who would express that they do not believe in God, as we said earlier, it's very small. It's not. He says no one. Uh, okay, approximately no one. <laughs> Maybe we'll round up or down. Which would that be? Because rounding down. It's actually not that far off, even our own experience, as secular as we've become. And it is radically secular compared to Geneva, let's be honest, right? <clears throat> even with all that, still, not many people, he says no one, let's say very few, would want to be completely off the grid on that, right? Oh, I have nothing to do with that sort of thing. Now, I think some of you heard me mention before, my, my own beloved father who is, is not a believer, but he's, he's in a way, he's the worst kind of unbeliever. He's an unbeliever who thinks he is a believer. If you ask him, if he were here, I've had this conversation many times, if you were to ask him, he'd say something like this. In fact, the phrase almost grates in my ears. I'm all right with the man upstairs. Just the fact that very phrase probably implies you're not all right with the man upstairs. <clears throat> But, but that perspective is not at all unusual in our own culture, right? Forget, say, let's say maybe a more pious, a more Christianly, generically Christian time. Even now, as far away from that as we've gotten, as secular as our cultures become, even now, it's quite common for folks to think, yeah, I have, I have some connection to some deity. And when it's all said and done, I don't know if there's a heaven and a hell, but there's a heaven, I'll be there. I'm pretty confident. It's, it'll be all right, because I'm all right. I, as you said, I'm a decent person. I, I do all right by my family, or even if I don't, because a lot of people don't. <laughs> exactly. I, I'm, I'm not, not as bad as Hitler, right? Actually, I've heard people say exactly that. They can point to some exa- I don't do that thing over there. That's right. <laughs> that's, <yeah. laughs> and he wasn't, so <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> he goes on I'm skipping just a couple of sentences um, but it picks up on the same theme so listen carefully it says yet willing or not they are bound by this thought oh wait I think I'm in the, in the wrong sentence there I didn't want to I didn't want to highlight in the book that I don't own which seemed like the right thing to do He uses the word yet several times. Here we go. Yet living in a disorderly way and rejecting all honesty, they exhibit a great sense of security in despising the judgment of God. Yet living in a disorderly way and rejecting all honesty, they exhibit a great sense of security in despising the judgment of God. What do you think he means by that? No, that's, if anything, that's more true now than it was then. Well, what is it? What is it? Just to be clear, what, do you, what is he getting at? What is he saying? 
happy. Yeah, I, does that happen in our culture? It happens all the time. The idea of God's judgment is so remote from us now. We don't even ponder the notion. We don't, it's hard for most people. This is why my father, I think, is so comfortable. He doesn't really think he faces judgment. Well, they don't like that in a lot of Christian churches. This is not just outside the church. It's how many... One of the reasons that my family and I, that we love Christ Church so much, is the whole gospel gets preached. I come out of church sometimes, you know... I'm reminded I'm a sinner. I've been, I will be honest with you all, I've been to other churches, I won't name any names, where you could be there for months, years at a time, and never be confronted with the fact that you might be a sinner. The gospel, it's good news, right? It's the, it's the, it's the good news of salvation. Saved from what? But you understand where, and this, this is Calvin talking in the 16th century, how much more so in the 21st century, if we don't have anything to be saved from, we don't need a savior, right? So then my obligations are very minimal, right? I just sort of be here and don't exterminate races. And I should be okay, pretty much. But, but it's interesting how society sort of come up with their own set of taboos, sins, if you will. That's a good point. We, we've, we've tossed out God's law, but we kind of create like a little mini law of our own, right? Don't be intolerant. That's a sin. That's right. We have, we have no toleration for that sort of thing. We have zero tolerance and tolerance policy. I'm pretty sure there is an educational institution somewhere in America <laughs> yeah, and I'm confident those people do not see the irony. You don't get a choice, really. You know, like, he's there. It's not really up to you, but okay. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> By banning the mints, we ban God. <laughs> we'll talk about it after class. <laughs> he's stuck on the mint part. But <laughs> Let me just go on to the very next sentence. Moreover, Calvin writes, they turn away from the true God because they estimate God not by his infinite majesty, but by the foolish and giddy vanity of their own mind. Yeah, and I love the, I love the phrases that he uses to describe that foolish and giddy vanity. I love that word giddy. But he captures it with vanities. We're the, do we do this? We, I think you were just saying it, actually. Do we make up a God that we're comfortable with? I'll worship that God, who his expectations are very low. And, and he does what I want. And he fits the box that I made for him. There could be one in there, right? <laughs> 
Well, actually, the golden calf does, is, in some sense, isn't that the Israelites' way of putting God in a context that they first can understand? We know calves, powerful, they're young, they grow up, they become bulls, people worship that. It's gold. I love gold. Gold's good. It's shiny. It's, it suggests power and wealth. I love that. That's a God I can worship. And so that means... Okay, I used to wear part of God as my necklace. That's right, exactly. That God wouldn't be there if it weren't for my contribution, right? And then jewelry. I love Aaron's explanation. Well, I just tossed the gold and that came out. <laughs> Could have happened to anybody. It did not move as far as I know. This is not a new phenomenon. I mean, when Calvin says that it's not new, it's not new in our generation either. Um, in fact, I'm glad you mentioned the, the, the golden calf because it turns out you can go back to the earliest parts of the Old Testament and it's there too. We, we tend to reduce God to a sort of a more manageable state, something that, that we're okay with, doesn't expect too much out of us, sort of meets our expectations, right? That I'm willing to come, you know, part way. I, I'll come to church. Well, maybe not. I don't, maybe if I don't want to come, but sometimes I'll come and, and I, I might be nice to my neighbor. I might not. Some of those people are pretty nasty. I don't like some of them. I'll be nice to good people and if it helps me in some way. And we begin to really boil them down to something far less. But isn't that, it's, it's across the human experience. That's, it's not entirely what a false religion is. I've made up a God that I can deal with on some level. It's okay. I can handle this. Jamie, you were going to add something there? I was just going to observe that that sort of attitude to God was even visible in the fall of Adam and Eve. I think it actually goes back that far, yeah. Okay, wait. This is this imaginary being that you're referring to as God is obviously not God if you think you can hide from him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. What in your experience says you can hide from God? And even think of the conversation between Eve and the serpent, right? First, did God actually say? And of course, what the serpent says isn't, isn't what God said. But then, then Eve comes back with, well, he said, no, we can't eat or even touch the tree, which is also not what God said, right? But then what's the serpent sort of comeback? Well, the reason is he knows that as soon as you eat this fruit, then you'll become aware. You'll have the knowledge of good and evil, and then you'll be like God yourself. So it, it, it's reducing God to sort of this jealous sort of trickster who's holding back information. And reducing God to like himself. Exactly. It's exactly what Satan would do if he were God. Right. Exactly. <clears throat> So this, you're right, that, that notion of reducing God to something more manageable. As he says here, what's the, because um, I, I love the words, they're so, they're so on, the, on target, I want to get them exactly right. That by using our foolish and giddy vanity of our own mind to recreate a God, what do we come up with? It's not an improvement, right? It's something far inferior. Yeah. Is that true about the, um, what Satan says about you become a God? Mm-hmm. If God wanted to keep it a secret from them, don't make the trees in. <laughs> That's a good point. Why even put it there? Oh, darn. I wish I'd not put that tree there. But, yeah. You know what? If you had been there, I would have loved to have heard that conversation with the serpent. <laughs> <laughs> Things Eve could have said. What's this tree even here for? 
Exactly. There's there's probably yeah, there's probably more to exactly, yeah. And translated into French it sounds different. <laughs> Let me um I want to press ahead just a little bit further here. Now, this is Calvin speaking towards the end of the, t- the, ch- the chapter. Now, the gist of true piety does not consist in a fear which would gladly flee the judgment of God, but being unable to do so has horror of it. The gist of true piety does not consist in a fear which would gladly flee the judgment of God, but being unable to do so has a horror of it. So that's, we've talked about the fake article. What's the genuine article look like then, according to Calvin here? Not a cow. Well, not a cow, right. Fear and horror. I mean, fear that you flee from, but a horror, and I'm not sure in French how that translates. Yeah, more or less. No, yeah. Let me read the sentence one more time. We'll, we'll break it down. The gist of true piety does not consist in a fear which would gladly flee the judgment of God. Is there someplace I could go to hide from this? Can I get out from under this thing? You're not convicted of your sin at that point. Right, exactly. I, I, it's not that I've done something wrong. I'm just going to, like you said, I can hide. God's in the garden. I'm going to go hide behind this tree. Right? That's... That's not me saying I did something wrong. That's me saying I can get out of this somehow, right? It's, sorry, I was exactly. Yeah, I'm sorry that, yeah. You know the old apology, I'm sorry that you feel offended by what I said. Eh, that's, you, that's not an apology. It's very much like that. It's, it lacks conviction, right? That's not, it's not a sinner's reaction. That's somebody who feels justified but doesn't want to get in trouble, right? So that's, that's only the first half of the sentence here. Let's, let's look at the second half. But, so that's not what it is, but being unable to do so, knowing that we can't flee the judgment. Again, this is probably, uh, we might be confused by the words. Instead, being unable to do so has horror of it. We, we should be terribly concerned about the judgment of God, knowing we can't get away from it ourselves. That's not something we have the capacity to do. So what's the flip side? The next sentence, true piety consists rather in a pure and true zeal which loves God altogether as Father and reveres Him truly as Lord, embraces His justice and dreads to offend Him more than to even die. Literally, it would be better to die than offend God. It doesn't always come down to that choice, but that's, that's a hard one, right? I mean, understand what he's... That's not, that's not watering down the standard. That's not reducing God to something smaller. That's just, you've just placed him as high as he can be, right? He's greater than you, greater than your life, etc. So let me direct your, your attention to the final sentence of the, of the chapter. We'll wrap up here in just a moment. He says, all those who possess this zeal that we were just talking about, 
do not undertake to forge for themselves a god as their temerity wishes, sort of like the golden calf, right? But they seek the knowledge of the true God, from whom that from, sorry, let me, I st- let me start that over. They seek the knowledge of the true God from that very God, and do not conceive him otherwise than he manifests and declares himself to them. I don't know if you've been wondering, what does this have to do with the topic of the semester, the nature of God? You understand that's exactly finally where Calvin takes us. How do we know about God? We go to God. That's how we find out about God. It's not some hidden secret somewhere else. We certainly don't make it up ourselves. We're a bad source. We ask God about God. God has very clearly, he's given us a scripture. His word tells us about him. We've also talked before, his creation reveals him as well. But, but we must go to the source. We don't go anywhere else. We go to God himself to find out about God. And so really that's what the rest of this book is about. How do we learn from God about God? And what do we learn about God from God? So, creation reveals God to everybody. That's right. Well, what the Bible adds that is not found in creation, don't tell C.S. Lewis, uh, is salvation. The path to salvation is not laid out in creation. You can learn much, Paul says, right? You can learn much about the nature of God from his creation, but you can't learn Jesus Christ's redeeming work from creation itself. You need his, the special revelation. You need the word for that. It turns out that's a pretty important one, so I encourage you to read your Bible. Uh, we should stop here. We're out of time, but uh, let's take a, a moment to pray together before we wrap up, shall we? Heavenly Father, we first are grateful for the start of a new term. It's great to be back together once again and to be uh, looking into your word to understand you better. Lord, as, as Calvin recommends here, we want to come to you. We want you to be our teacher, you to be our instructor. Help us, Lord, to understand you better and by understanding you better, serve you better. We ask, Lord, now as we uh, prepare to part company that you would bless us each one. In Jesus' name, amen.